There are many stories of professional fighters whose journey began by losing a fight. Maybe they were younger, they were bullied, they were picked on, even beat up. And they resolve that they're never going to be defeated again, never humiliated again. So they start training, learning how to fight, getting stronger, eventually become pros. I actually knew a guy like that. He didn't actually go pro, but I knew a guy like that back in college. Some fraternity guys were having a friendly backyard boxing match, as they are prone to do. But one guy just got absolutely destroyed and embarrassed in this semi-friendly boxing match. But I noticed after that, he started working out. He started going to the gym, started training, even started taking boxing lessons. And so what does that tell you? It's pretty obvious. He was determined to never be defeated and humiliated like that again. No one ever wants to be beat down and defeated, but when it happens, it can actually prove to be quite a potent uh, catalyst for change and growth. I think the same is true spiritually. There are more than a few Christians who get beat down by their sin repeatedly. We're talking sinful behavior. They know it's wrong. That Part of them wants to fight against it, but they're, they're just no match. The, as soon as they step into the ring with their sin, it knocks them down. Their flesh mops them up. And, and they, this can happen for a long time. Day after day, they suffer a spiritual defeat. Hopefully, though, they reach a breaking point where they become just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And they're ready to change. And I wonder if that maybe has happened to you. You're just tired of all the guilt and the shame that comes with your sin. You finally reach a critical point of conviction. You have to change. It's like when too much water builds behind a dam, it it has to break out. Too much conviction has built up in your soul. It's got to go somewhere. You can't be defeated any longer. It's time to get trained and fight back against your sin. That might be why some of you are here at this class or for those listening online. You've been regularly subdued by your sin, but enough is enough. You've always had excuses in the past for not changing, but no more. Finally, your conviction is greater than the sum of all of your excuses. So the dam must break open. Now, I can only say to that, amen, praise the Lord. Even if you had to learn the hard way by being the prodigal, that the way of the wicked is hard. Still, whenever someone learns that it's better in the Father's house, I need to repent. I need to return. I will say, praise the Lord for that. However that conviction came about, we're never going to turn that away. But at the same time, reaching that point of finally being convicted and ready to change is not the end of the story. That's because for many, their good intentions are quickly thereafter squandered and lost. The waters of change burst through the dam. But then they get diverted in the wrong direction and just dispersed and wasted. Nothing changes. I also wonder, has has maybe that happened to you? I bet for some of you it has. You've gotten to that point of being sick and tired, of being sick and tired with your sin struggles. You get worked up maybe from a sermon, from a retreat, from an experience. And and your resolve to change. I'm going to change. I'm going to stop doing this thing. I'm going to Change my ways over here. Turn from the sin. You move forward with resolve and and some energy. Maybe for a week or two, things seem a little different. But in reality, you don't actually know how to change, not biblically. And eventually the enthusiasm wears off. The pressures of the world rebuild the dam. The excuses come back and reinforce it. The water's all gone. You go back to your old ways. And then it can be several months, maybe several years before the the conviction builds back up again for you to, to do something 
different. But you see the point. It's not enough just to be ready to change. You also have to know how. Otherwise, your efforts are wasted. And this is why many fail. They remain defeated on the battlefield for long. They don't know how to grow or overcome their sin. And that's why we're here for this evening class. To fill in that critical gap, we're back for another lesson in this series we're calling Winning the War Against Sin. To to study God's word, to find out when that time comes, when you reach that point of change, when you reach that place of, of desiring spiritual growth, you know how to change biblically. And even more so that as you're sanctified, your threshold for change lowers. You don't need some special experience or event to lead you to want to grow. Rather, daily you're engaged in battle with your sin. You're daily being sanctified. You're daily overcoming the flesh. And you know how. Last week, we began this time together with an introductory message. Just taking a step back to get the big picture look at the war against sin. And overall, this is God's war, right? He's the righteous one carrying out a campaign to rid the world of evil and evildoers. His perfect creation will be perfect again. Sin can be defined as rebellion against God's perfect will. That rebellion won't last forever. God allowed it. Christ conquered it. He'll return, eventually eradicate it. But for now, as believers... The Lord Jesus has enlisted us in this fight. He redeemed us by grace. He made us holy, now calls us to to be holy, to live holy lives. And God is uniquely glorified by his people when they walk by the Spirit, overcome the flesh, and become more like Christ in this life. Something we can only do in this life. There's no sanctification in the next life. But still, the million-dollar question we're asking here is, is how? Like, Okay, how do you do that? And this evening, as we progress in that quest, I want to move forward and and come down from looking at the big picture of the war against sin down to the level of of the battlefields. What are the various battlefields? We're still not quite ready to train you in hand-to-hand combat. Your individual training and fighting sin, that's coming shortly still, but as newly enlisted soldiers, you still need some basic training. And just knowing where to fight is a big part of that. Knowing where to fight against sin is is a big deal. During World War II, the Germans knew that the Allies were going to invade. They were going to launch an amphibious assault and invade. But they had 2,000 miles of coastland to defend. They couldn't defend at all. It was vital that they place their troops in just the right places to repel the Allies invading. But that didn't happen. There was a massive deception campaign launched by the Allies Fake radio transmissions, fake tanks, fake landy crafts, double spies, all to throw off where they were going to launch on D-Day. And the Germans believed it was coming in July, either in in Norway or the very northernmost tip of France. But here comes D-Day June in Normandy, and the German troops were way out of place. They were totally out of position. Most of them had been deployed to all the wrong battlefields. And we typically think of D-Day as an intense fight, and it was in one place. Omaha Beach was the exception and saw intense fighting, but most of the other landings saw almost no resistance. The point, though, is you don't win wars by showing up at the wrong battlefield. That's how you lose wars. And with that in mind, I think many Christians, that's how they lose the war against sin. 
or at least many battles. They spend too much time fighting in all the wrong areas. They put too much of their focus in all the wrong things, and they try and change in all the wrong ways. This might be, you might learn tonight, this is perhaps why you've been on the losing end for a long time. You're fighting the wrong fight in the wrong place with the wrong methods. And even if if you find a little short-term success, you don't know lasting victory, this might be why. So here's the question of the evening. Where does the fight against sin really take place? Where does the fight against sin really take place? We're actually going to spend most of our time tonight, before we jump jump into the word, to answer that question negatively. Because first, I want to labor to, to identify some of the wrong battlefields. I think we have to do this. I can't assume you all know this in a class like this. But all too many Christians rush into these wrong battlefields, thinking this is where the fight's taking place. But their efforts are ultimately wasted. Again, they might win a few battles here and there, but long term, they're losing because they're fighting in the wrong place. We need to identify these wrong battlefields. We're going to do that. I would say for maybe the majority of you, you could probably identify on paper these are the wrong battlefields in the fight against sin. But I'd also bet you still slip back into them more often than not, thinking this is what you need to do to fight your sin. For others, though, maybe maybe a newer believer, you've never heard or learned where the fight against sin actually takes place. I hope this will be eye-opening for you. Because in the end, we will come back and identify the right battlefield. And the implications of this lesson are massive. How we fight sin is largely determined by where we fight sin. How we fight sin is largely determined by where we fight sin. That You'll see how that makes sense by the end. Now, we're going to start with these wrong battlefields. Now, obviously, we're using battlefield as a metaphor. We're not talking about literal armies fighting with literal weapons, but spiritual warfare here. Yet, when it comes to our sin struggles, we're trying to find out what needs to change. Where should you focus all of your efforts? Problem, solution. You've got these sin problems. So wherein lies the solution? This is all another way of asking, what is to blame for your sin? When you sin, why do you sin? What's to blame? So let me identify three wrong battlefields, just to carry on the metaphor. Three wrong battlefields in the fight against sin. The first would be circumstances. Circumstances. Whether consciously or not, I would say most people, almost by default, blame their sin on their circumstances. Look, the only reason they're doing what they're doing is because of their circumstances. If only their circumstances were different, they would be different. Sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle. This is just another way of blame shifting and not taking personal responsibility for your actions. It is really to say that you don't need to change at all. Only your circumstances need to change. It's far easier, after all, to blame your sin on external circumstances. It's a way of saving face. You're not a bad person. You don't have a problem. You don't really have a choice. I mean, anyone put in such circumstances would respond in sin, I wouldn't be so discontent if I just had more money. I wouldn't be so covetous if I just had a big house. 
I wouldn't be so lustful if I just had a spouse. I wouldn't be so angry if my children just listened to me. I wouldn't drink if I just had a trouble-free life. I wouldn't be depressed if I just had better health. Have you ever been so angry with your spouse that you say, and you get angry and you say, you, you made me angry. You made me get angry. Or you yell at your kids and you say, you made me yell at you. That's just a way of blaming your sinful outbursts of anger on circumstances. In this case, it's another person. They basically forced you to sin. That's effectively what you're saying. It's, you're not to blame at all. They're to blame. Naturally, if this is the case, if your sin issues are to blame on your circumstances, well, what's the solution? If this is the battlefield, okay, if this is where we got to fight sin, well, then how do we fight? Well, obviously, just change your circumstances. That's all you got to do. Just get a new set of circumstances and you'll overcome your sin problem, right? So you start to focus all of your energy externally on changing your environment or stage of life. You start to passionately pursue money or relationships or good health, whatever you think will make you happy and erase all your troubles. Maybe at the same time you you think the solution is to just flee bad circumstances. The whole reason you're so unhappy and sinful is because of your spouse or your job or your in-laws. And the only way you're ever going to get better is if you flee them. I, I trust and hope, though, that most of you can discern that circumstances is the wrong battlefield of sin. This is not where the battle against sin is fought and won. Circumstances, this is a diversion. This is an excuse. Blaming your sin on your circumstances clearly misses the root of the matter. And like, if you've lived long enough, you've probably already seen the proof of this in your own life. Because as time goes on, whether you like it or not, circumstances tend to change. Sometimes for the worse, sometimes for the better. But lo and behold, your sin struggles don't go anywhere. They're not changing as your circumstances change. It doesn't go away like you thought it would, or maybe it might diminish in one area, but then just moves over, resurfaces in another related area, maybe stronger. It's like a young man who gets married thinking that finally he'll overcome his battle against lust, only to find that, what do you know, lust came with him into his marriage. Or an angry woman gets a divorce thinking her spouse was the source of all of her anger issues. Only to find her anger doesn't go anywhere, still there, comes back with a vengeance when she remarries. Or a middle-aged couple receives an inheritance and strike it rich. And finally, they've got the money to buy everything they've longed for. Nice car, nice house, expensive clothes. But they find that their covetousness and, and greed, it's not diminished. It's stronger. They want more now. Now, to be clear, circumstances can be a, a contributing factor to your sin. They can effectively stack the deck against you and amplify your temptation to sin. We'll put it that way. They certainly can amplify your temptation to sin. But circumstances are never to blame for your sin. Not, not biblically. They're never to blame for your sin. I mean, circumstances, they're not the cause of your sin. Just think of the worst, most tempting circumstances to sin you could possibly think of. Like, I don't know, fasting for 40 days in the wilderness and then being tempted by the devil himself. 
You're, you're physically at your weakest, and then you're facing the greatest tempter there is. And if you ever had an excuse for sinning, that would be it. Like, what am I supposed to do here? There's no way I cannot sin. Uh, the devil made me do it. <laughs> Who could stand against that? Well, Jesus did, proving that, look, no set of external circumstances ever forces you to sin. There is always a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you are still making a choice. At the end of the day, you're still culpable every time. Again, I'm not saying we should ignore all circumstances of life. Later, near the end of this lesson plan, we're going to find there's much wisdom in changing our circumstances to make no provision for the flesh in accordance with its lusts. Romans 13, 14, that's wisdom. Make no provision for the flesh in accordance with its lusts. We'll get there. But here's the point now. No decisive victories against sin are won on the battlefield of circumstances. You get that? No decisive victories against sin are won on the battlefield of circumstances. This is not where it's at. It's not where you're going to change. Now, secondly, a second wrong battlefield. The body. The body. In recent years, it's become more and more in vogue to blame sinful behavior entirely on the body. My body made me do it. My hormones made me do it. My brain made me do it. My genetics made me do it. Sinful, immoral behavior is reduced to a biological consequence, which again, thereby precludes someone from personal responsibility or accountability. That they're not to blame for their actions at all. That their body is. And so lustful urges can be blamed on hormones. Or anger can be blamed on a lack of sleep. Depression can be blamed on brain chemistry. And even now, homosexuality can be blamed on genetics. Even though, side note, there's still zero proof for that. Beside the point. Now, again, we do have to be very clear here and add some biblical balance God made us two parts, body, soul, intertwined, two parts. And he made both good, but both were corrupted at the fall. Spiritual death was immediate, we're cut off from God. Physical death is surely to follow at some point thereafter. And so now we all are going to decay and die physically. And until that happens, a whole host of things can go wrong with our bodies. And because we are one person, body and soul intertwined, some spiritual issues can certainly be influenced by our bodies, brains, and hormones. We don't deny that. No one is denying that there's some connection between our biology and our behavior. You might have an old man with advanced stages of Alzheimer's, and a brain scan will prove to you his brain has severely deteriorated. That is certainly going to be a contributing factor to why he struggles with anger and belligerence. It's like, nobody's denying that. So again, we don't deny some connection between behavior and biology, that our behavior can be influenced by our biology. But we do contend that biblically, sinful behavior can never be reduced to mere biology. That's because sinful behavior always involves a choice of the will. It's not like biology or your genetics is holding a gun to your head, making you do an action. This is different from certain involuntary actions like breathing or blinking. If God defined blinking as a sin, 
we're hopeless because biologically we can't help but blink a lot. We can't stop blinking. We would be hopeless. But you see, actual sinful behavior as defined by God in the word, it never pertains to involuntary actions. It always pertains to voluntary actions, choices of the will. You're choosing to do something. Whether you think you are or not, you're, you're making a choice. You don't have to do it. Biology can influence you, but it never makes you do anything. It, it never makes a choice for you. This is why, by the way, God's commands are legitimate. He would never command us to refrain from behavior that's biologically determined. It would be an illegitimate command. Like, thou shall not have red hair. It's like, well, what are we supposed to do about that? We have no control. But look, his commands only ever pertain to actions determined by our will. And that's why we're always on the hook for our sins before God. Biology is never an excuse. Then just keep in mind, human behavior is incredibly complex. It's not determined by genetics. Genetics determines certain fixed traits, like hair color, eye color. Flip a switch here and there, you might be taller or shorter. That's fine. But human behavior is so complex, forged by nature, nurture, culture, society, peer pressure, trauma, so much more. A whole host of things goes into someone's behavior choices. And look, even if in the future scientists find some genetic link to uh, your genetics and certain sinful behaviors, that still would not excuse people from the responsibility uh, over their choices. Because we're still talking about the end of the day, a choice of the will. However inclined you are to that choice, it's still a choice. And at least not before God, you're not off the hook. Certainly, as our society sinks further into darkness, genetics has become a convenient excuse for moral behavior. But biblically, your actions always come with a choice, and and so you will be judged. The same goes for the brain. It's worth pointing out that our godless culture has found another convenient excuse for immoral behavior by blaming it all on the brain. I mean, having rejected God, we, we now must reject the soul. Man has no soul. We're just, we're evolved molecules. And we exist by just a mixture of chemicals. That's all we are. We're just a mixture of chemicals, chemical reactions. That means your behavior problems, that has nothing to do with a soul in rebellion against a good creator God. No, your your brain is just imbalanced. And so every behavior problem you have possible can just be reduced to some chemical imbalance in the brain. It's all attributed to the brain. Just look at the latest psychology manual for behavior disorders. It's called DSM-5. And it's just mostly a way of slapping a disorder label on sinful behavior just to give it some legitimacy. And with everything, almost everything, minus Alzheimer's, dementia, things that show up on a scan, almost every disorder they list could never be found by a physical test. No scan, no x-ray, no blood work, no pathology. No brain scan. Nothing is going to show anything's wrong with you. These are all diagnosed by a psychological interview. But society now treats these like they're determinate diseases that you have no control over. You're just a victim of your brain. And so now we have a whole list of disorders. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Obsessive compulsive disorder. Conduct disorder. Alcohol use disorder. Gambling disorder. One of the latest ones added, internet gaming disorder. 
That's real. That list goes on for miles. By the way, up until past few decades, homosexuality and transgenderism were listed as severe mental disorders by the DSM, earlier revisions. That's been dropped, as you can imagine. But look, let me just be crystal clear. If, you, if we were to counsel you to help you overcome some sin in your life, we would never tell you to ignore your body. No, that the body can be an influencing factor. So we would tell you, go see a, a real physician, an MD. Take every scan possible. Run all your blood work. Do, do everything under the sun. Figure out what might be wrong with your body. And then fix it. And praise God for the common grace of modern medicine. But just know this, that even when your body's all fixed, don't think your sin is just going to go away. Because biology is not the source You can't ignore your soul because you do have a soul. You have a spirit. And we will find shortly it has a whole lot to do with your sinful behavior. This is why we would caution against swallowing wholesale the counsel of atheistic psychology, which seeks to reduce all your behavior to biology and just ignores the soul, which is quite ironic because the word psychology in the Greek literally means the study of the soul. But we, we've, we've cast off the study of the soul because if there's a soul, there has to be a soul giver, God. And, well, we can't have that anymore. That was gone 200 years ago. And Christians who put themselves under such counsel, they're only going to find at the end of the road the same helplessness and hopelessness as those in the world. And the same inability to change. That you're, just, you're given a label. You'll never change. It's just your label. At best, you'll be drugged up on some cocktail of pills. We don't even know how they work, if they work. They've got crazy side effects, but it doesn't really matter. They'll put you in such a haze, you won't worry about your problems anymore anyway. And that's it. That's just the rest of your life. Now, there, there is a better way. God's word gives real hope for real change. God made, made us. He knows us, how we work, how we break. The body does matter. But if you think the battle against your sinful behavior is fought entirely on the battlefield of the body, you're mistaken. And if you move all your troops to this battlefield thinking this is it, you just focus all your efforts on the body, you're going to lose. Because you're still missing the true source of sin, according to scripture. And so we can't have that. We're not going to ignore this battlefield, but this is not the source of your sin. We need to figure that out. But first, we have one more, a third wrong battlefield that must be identified, exposed, trying to save you years of trouble and wasted effort. So one more, third wrong battlefield, behavior, just behavior itself, behavior. Now I have to explain this one because you're thinking like, I thought behavior is the issue and we're trying to find the source, right? So, but the thing is many they don't, they find no source. They don't care about a source. They, they have no eyes to see the source. They just see some fighting going on in the realm of behavior and think, well, I just got to fix that. There's no source. It's just, that's the only problem, behavior. There's no underlying factor. So they focus all their attention on their behavior. And biblically, we're going to learn your outward behavior. It, it is actually the result of something else, something going on at a much deeper level. So behavior is not the battleground, but not everyone knows that. Many people, they pay no attention to the root. 
When you show a young child a huge tree, they, they have no eyes to see that under the surface. There's a massive root system. They've not learned that yet. They just see what's on the outside, and that's it. Many Christians can be like that, not knowing they see fruit, good or bad, and think, I just got to fix that. That's where it's at. Not knowing that there's a huge root system that could be rotten here. That, that's the real problem. But most people, they, they don't know better. They see good fruit, bad fruit. They react accordingly. They never bother looking for a deeper source or battlefield for their actions. And so, thinking behavior is the battlefield, what do they do? How do they fight their sin? And the answer here is just behavior modification. That's all you got to do. Change your behavior. Behavior modification. This is how you get like a Nike sanctification. Just, just do it. Just change. Just, just change. Or employ some behavior control gimmicks. If you want to change, you need to find a real tight-fitting straight jacket, strap that thing on, and just restrain your behavior by any means necessary. That's how you stop sinning. That's how you overcome the flesh. This is the person who might tie a string around his finger to remind him to be more patient with his wife. This is the person who thinks the only way to stop pornography is to cancel all TV, all internet. It's the only way. This is the person who thinks the only way they can get over their addiction is by having people call them every half hour on the hour, every day, all day. They have to have people in their life just keeping them accountable. It's the only way. Now, again, I must clarify that there can be some wisdom in such tactics, again, as a means of not making a provision for the flesh. There's wisdom we'll, we'll come back to. You're going to need to build some defenses on this field, the field of behavior. You want to leave some troops here, some guards, some sentries. Your behavior has to be addressed, yes. But once again, the point is, this is not the decisive battlefield. You can do some defense here, but no one's winning the war by playing defense. This is not where spiritual growth is found. It's going to happen somewhere else. And really, when you think about it, if, if the only reason you don't fall off the deep end of your sin for example, is because you've got a group of people keeping you accountable 24-7. You haven't really changed at all. You have not grown. You're simply being constrained. You're the same person. You're just externally constrained. That's not change or growth. And the second those constraints are gone, guess what you're going to do? You've merely put your flesh in a straitjacket. That's not the type of victory over sin we're after here. And, and God's word shows us a much better way. But I have to pick on this wrong battlefield a little bit more because this is where I believe most well-meaning Christians fall, fall into. They spend far too much of their time battling on the field of behavior, deeds, missing where they ought to go. And this really leads them to employ, I think, the number one wrong tactic to overcome sin. The number one wrong tactic to overcome sin. Legalism. Legalism. Let me explain this. Many Christians believe that the way to change and get over their sin is what? The law. We need the law. They need more rules in their life. Sin is lawlessness, right? It's a violation of God's laws. They don't want to do that, but they know they're weak. So what's the solution? Well, how about more laws? More guards? More rules to keep them from their sin. That, that'll work. They believe the power to change is in the law. An example will help 
clarify this. And I once counseled a young couple who was engaged and getting ready to be married, very excited, preparing for marriage. And they wanted to be sexually pure before marriage, but temptation was strong. They were starting to cross some lines, but they didn't want to. How could they stop themselves? Well, they did what came naturally to them. They made a list of rules. I don't remember the details of their list. This was a long time ago, but they effectively put external constraints on their relationship to make them pure. Like never be alone together for a prolonged period of time. Never be home alone together. Never give more than a peck on the cheek. Keep your hands to yourself. Don't stay out too late. It's a long list of things not to do. And these were sensible rules designed to hold back their flesh. I bet a lot of you can see some value in that. Say, it doesn't sound so bad. But do you think it worked? Of course not. And why not? There's no real power in law, God's law or man's law, to fight the flesh or restrain sin. There's no power there. These laws did nothing to change their desires. Their desires remain quite strong and unaffected, merely externally constrained, but very weakly. Because the thing is, when you make the rules, you can break them whenever you want, especially if there's no real consequences. It's just you can break them at will. And that's the real problem here, your will. The reality is, whether you want to admit it or not, that every time you sin, you're doing it because you want to. You're doing it because there's some part of you that wants to do it every time. And what is a paltry list of rules going to do about that? If God's rules aren't enough to keep you from sinning, you think adding some more of your own are going to do a better job than God's law? The whole point, though, is that there is some other force within you leading you to sin, causing you to break all these laws. You already broke through all God's laws. You think your centuries are going to do any better? No, you, you need to figure out that deeper force that's leading you to sin. But regarding legalism, I want you to turn to Colossians 2. Let's get in the word a little bit. Most of that was introduction as we're getting toward the right battlefield pretty shortly. But, but I still want to pick on this wrong battlefield and this wrong tactic. Because again, it's, look, I think in well-meaning Christian circles, it's just, it's a default error. Legalism. What does Paul say about this in Colossians chapter 2? Turn there. Just to frame the section, it starts back in verse 8. Although we're going to go to the end of the chapter. Back in Colossians 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. He's giving a warning to the church because false teachers were coming in, seeking to lead the believers away from Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. That's what he's talking about before. He's going to do some more after. Christ is all we need for power, for salvation and sanctification. But that's not what these others were teaching. They were reverting back to legalism, among other things. So he warns that that is not the way to... Holy living. Uh, That's not the way. Jump down to verse 16. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, 
but the substance belongs to Christ. These teachers are saying that the way to God is found through the law. This is both Jewish law and they've added a bunch of their own laws. If you want to be holy, you got to keep the law. But they're failing to recognize that the law by itself is powerless to save. And the law by itself, it's, it's even powerless to restrain your sin. Verse 20. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. What he's getting at is that these false teachers had mixed in a type of asceticism with their legalism, believing that self-denial was the way to holiness. And this is a form of behavior modification. You control your behavior by restraining your flesh. Many religions do this. They enforce fasts or forms of self-denial. But Paul says that is of no value and no use. That's just the teaching of men. That's what men do. That's not from God. There's no power in such laws. What's his final verdict on legalism, asceticism? Verse 23. He says, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. Not a little value. They're of no value against fleshly indulgence. Legalism, asceticism, whatever else, ism. They're just of no value against fighting the flesh. It's because these laws don't address the root of sin. God's law was meant to reveal his standard of righteousness for his people, but it did nothing to make them conform to that standard. And rather, because of their fallen natures, all his perfect law did was draw out more of their sin. It just simply shows that the real problem of sin is found deeper than behavior. And God's law is not the problem. For the sake of time, just listen to Romans 7, 12, and 13, which says this. He says, so then, the law, God's law, is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. The point is, though, that the law is not the problem here. It's not to blame for your sin. The law is not to blame for our sin problem, but the law is also not the solution to our sin problem. The law is not to blame for our sin problem, but the law is also not the solution to our sin problem. If the law could save or sanctify people, Israel wouldn't have had so much trouble because they had plenty of law. They had the greatest expression of God's law in the Torah, all 613 commands. But look, that did nothing to save or sanctify them by itself because the law by itself could do nothing to address their real, their real sin problem. Law, law-keeping rules, it's not the answer to spiritual growth. Legalism is not the answer. 
more rules, more moral teaching is not the answer. Posting the Ten Commandments at a courthouse does not actually make anyone more godly. It doesn't do anything to make people more godly. Fearing worldliness creeping into the church, imposing a list of man-made rules does not actually keep the church pure. And sadly, this is what's happened in many American churches throughout the last century, that they just, they rely on a set of rules to keep people pure. No drinking, no dancing, no smoking, no chewing, no watching R-rated movies. They see, all this has zero power to affect real change in the war against sin or to grow us in Christ-likeness. There's no power there. Isn't this the exact trap the Jews fell into? Recall, New Old Testament, Israel, Judah, they both were conquered. Those nations were conquered. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was leveled. The people were exiled. The land was lost. Why did this happen? Because they did not obey God's commands. Very clear. They did not obey God's commands. Okay. God called Israel corporately. He promised them blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. Now that's just for corporate Israel. That had nothing to do with an individual Israelite's salvation. Any individual had to be saved by grace through faith, how it always is. But corporately, this is how God related to Israel as a people. He possessed them unconditionally, but he did not bless them unconditionally. They had to obey the law of Moses. If they didn't, they would be cursed. And what do you know? They didn't because they were unbelieving. And and so he brought all the curses on them, he said, which culminated with this exile. Now, because of God's unconditional promise to Israel as a corporate people, he preserved a remnant. And he did bring them back to the land as he also promised. But that right there, when Israel comes back after the exile, that's when things drastically change for them. Talk about being defeated, right? Corporate Israel, they lost the fight against sin and idolatry over and over again. Their whole history is one of just repeatedly being knocked down by sin and suffering spiritual defeat. And it just culminated in this total knockout, the exile. They finally stumble and get back up and come to their senses. And, you know, after being beat down that hard, they vowed, we are never doing that again. We're never going to let this happen again. They're never going to worship false gods. They're never going to break God's commandments ever again. But still not knowing the right way, what method did they employ to, to change? The answer was legalism. Their answer to their sin problem was simply more law. They reasoned, look, we lost the temple and the land because we broke all of God's laws. Okay, so how do we not do that again? Well, let's add more laws. So hundreds, thousands of man-made rules and laws were added around the Torah like a hedge, they said, a fence to protect the Torah. The goal was to so constrain the behavior of the people that they could never even get close to breaking one of God's actual laws. And the law says, don't work on the Sabbath. Let's say you can't even pick up a pile of sticks on the Sabbath. The law says, avoid what is unclean. Let's say you've got to ceremonially wash your hands before every meal. And the list went on and on. Over the years, countless laws were added. It is legalism at its finest. And did it work? 
Did Israel become closer to God? Did they become holier? Did they overcome their sin? No. And granted, they became more monotheistic. That's good. I mean, they gave up idolatry in the outward sense. They stopped worshiping Baal and false gods. Like, okay, that's good. But they were still just as unbelieving and idolatrous in their hearts. They still didn't have a true heart for God. No amount of rules can change that. All these laws did nothing to address the true root cause of their sin. And therefore, for as many laws as they had, they just made new loopholes. They found ways to get around their own laws because they wanted to do what they wanted to do and they were going to do it. They did not become holier. They just became professional hypocrites. And this is the state of Israel when Jesus shows up on the scene. This is what he sees. If legalism or behavior modification was the way of salvation or sanctification, then Jesus would not have opposed the religious leaders so much. But he did left and right because these guys had it so wrong and they were leading all the rest of the people so far astray. All they cared about was the outside, behavior, appearance. They paid no attention to the heart. And so Jesus rebuked them all the time. But here's the thing, in his rebukes, he shows us the right way. He shows us where to fight against sin. Jesus is the one who leads us to the true battlefield in fighting sin and overcoming in his strength and his power. And so what is it then? What is to blame for your sin? It's not ultimately your circumstances, your body, or your behavior itself. Your sinful deeds are not your real problem. Listen to that. Your sinful deeds are not your real problem. Your real problem are your sinful desires. Your desires. Do you want to know why you sin? It's because you want to. There's part of you that really wants to. You have sinful desires inside of you. So do I. Your desires are corrupt. And as often as you give in to those sinful desires, sinful deeds show up. And so it sounds like we need to change. We got to do something about those desires. Where do they come from? How do we fight sin at the source? Well, the answer to that is the heart. The battlefield, the right battlefield for sin is the heart. So let's finish but transition our time now to the right battlefield and expose this by way of preview. But you already know we're going to come back and dive in this one a lot deeper now. But now a little preview on the right battlefield, which is the heart. Let me just, again, give you, for the sake of time, what Jesus says about this. Mark 7, 20 through 23. Really the whole chapter, but Mark 7, 20 through 23. Christ was, was saying to them, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. It's not, it's not about your ceremonial eating. It's, it's your heart that's the real source of defilement. Also, Luke 6.45 Jesus said, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. 
Christ is identifying already the heart is the source. What is the heart? We're obviously not talking about the literal organ or body part, but scripture uses the heart and many other terms to refer to our inner nature, our inner man. And specifically the heart spiritually is kind of the mission control center for your spirit, your soul. Whereas the brain is the mission control center for your, your body, your outer man. This concept of the heart, it's, it's the mission control center for your inner man. And biblically, your heart is the center, the source of your thoughts, your desires, your intentions. Hebrews 4.12, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Your heart thinks. Scripture sometimes uses the mind synonymously here, but the Hebrews uh, and, and the Greeks located the seat of our being as the heart, not the brain. As Jesus himself established, it's the heart with its desires that determine our behaviors. God made us to be creatures of desire, meaning we always act according to our strongest desire. That's how God designed us. That's not a bad thing because God made us with many good desires to live for his purposes. Before the fall, we were made to desire comfort and sustenance, pleasure, satisfaction, labor, worship. And there's a righteous expression for all of those desires in God's kingdom. But the thing is, we don't live before the fall. We live after the fall. And being cursed, knowing spiritual death, that in effect means our hearts are corrupt. And so all now are born with hearts or inner natures that have been spoiled by sin. And so Jeremiah 17, 9, you should know. This is the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Proverbs twenty two fifteen affirms foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Genesis eight twenty one again, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is all over the scriptures. It's not a mystery. But now that our hearts are corrupted and given over to rebellion against God, given over to the worship of self. Okay, if that's the state of our fallen hearts, what's coming out of these hearts? Sinful desires. This is how the desire for comfort turns into laziness. The desire for food turns into gluttony. The desire for provision turns into greed. The desire for sexual intimacy turns into adultery. The desire for pleasure turns into drunkenness. The desire for control turns into anger. The desire for possessions turns into covetousness. Desire for worship turns into idolatry. And that list goes on and on. Now look, here's the problem. Our, our inner natures have become corrupt, saturated in sin. In a word, depraved. And so what springs from the heart is no longer good, but evil. Sinful desires reside within us. And as often as we give in to them, well, sinful deeds result. But like weeding your garden, you don't seek to get rid of the weeds by just cutting them off with a lawnmower or weed whacker. You must uproot them. We got to do something about these desires. But behavior, that, that, that's a problem, but it's not the real problem. You get what I'm saying now? Behavior, it, it's a problem, but it's not the real problem. These heart desires are our real problem. Or as sometimes scripture puts it, the lusts of the flesh. You've heard that? The lusts of the flesh. We'll study that more, but Ephesians 2, 3. It's before salvation. 
says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Galatians 5.16 tells us to walk by the Spirit that we might not carry out the desires of the flesh. Looks like we still got them. Romans 1.24, speaking of an unbeliever who's fully hardened in sin, says God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. But the picture is, I mean, there's something broken inside of us. The sin problem, it is not skin deep. It goes way deeper down to our nature, the core of our being before God. Our behavior can certainly be constrained by external forces. Law, government, society, family, friends, rules. Yeah, you you can constrain your behavior, sure. But as often as we're given the opportunity, what's inside comes out. Sinful desires will manifest as sinful deeds. And if we're going to change then and win the war against sin, we we have to do something about that. We've got to fight on the real battlefield, which is the heart with its lusts. The heart with its sinful desires. And so it seems like we're onto something here, but this is just a preview. We, We definitely need to spend way more time understanding the heart but it already spawns a ton of questions, at least in my mind. I don't know about you. I mean, chiefly, like, what changes after salvation? Because I bet okay, if you're with me, you can understand, especially for the, the non-believer, this is a big problem. There's not much they can do about this. But I thought, like, at salvation, we're, we're new. We're saved. New heart. New spirit. Like, what actually changes at salvation? Do these desires go away? What happens to the heart at salvation? What happens to the flesh at salvation? What is the flesh? What are the lusts of the flesh? Are, are they gone now? Do they remain? If they remain, what can we do about them? Are we even able to change ourselves on the inside? I mean, how do you change your desires? Is that even possible? Can you change what you want? There's a lot more to discuss. And this evening, we, we've inched closer to uncover. The goal is to excavate you know, the holistic picture of spiritual growth from the Bible. We will carry on with that next week. But just to end, I'd say don't don't shortchange what we've covered tonight, although mostly in the negative. Covering where the battle against sin is not found is still quite important because, at least as I've seen, so much of our efforts just get wasted there, squandered. If you're spending all your time in these wrong battlefields, well, this might be why you've not grown. You're still messing with those same sins from 20 years ago. If you don't believe me, here's a a classic parenting example that can be all too real. Maybe you've got a teen boy who's acting out, getting into trouble. You're a concerned parent. You wonder, how can I help him change? Maybe his circumstances are to blame. I got to send him a new school. He's a new school, new friends. Maybe his body is to blame. I can get him on some antidepressants, some other drugs. Got to fix his body. Maybe his behavior is, is to blame. He needs a strict curfew. He needs way more rules. I need to tighten up on him. You can do all these things, and it might work. In the short term, it looks like you've got a good kid now. He looks, he's looking like a good kid. It looks like you've won the war against his sin. That is, until he leaves home and gains freedom from all of your external measures. And then his battle against sin will erupt, likely with a greater ferocity on all fronts, 
you'll quickly realize you did not win the war against his sin. That's because you did nothing to address the real problem, his heart. The problem of his heart, the need of his heart, the solution for his heart, it can be found. I'm not going to get into parenting, but the point is we, we don't make this mistake only with parenting. We make this mistake mostly just with us, with our own lives, with our own battle against sin. We get duped into thinking the battle against sin lies elsewhere. We worry too much about circumstances, the body, even our behavior. Again, we're never going to ignore circumstances, the body, or behavior. But we'll put some defensive forces there. But again, no one wins by playing defense. You don't win any wars just by playing defense. Eventually, you've got to launch that D-Day. You have to launch the offensive and strike the enemy at the heart, which just so happens to be our heart. We're fighting against our own heart. What does that mean? And still, how do you do it? That will be next time. That's, that's it. But let's pray. Our God, we, we do come before you again with, with just a, a prayer, a cry from our hearts. You have made our hearts new in Christ. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. We have all hope in the power of the Spirit. And although we haven't biblically chained all that together yet, uh, I, I pray we can still have all, all the hope we need in, in you. Because we have tasted and seen your good. Your ways are better. It is better in the Father's house. The ways of the wicked are hard. And man's ways, man's ways of changing and identifying trouble and overcoming certainly don't work. We, we have tasted and seen that all too well as well. So I pray tonight you do guard us against the wrong way. There are so many dead ends out there in a maze of, of how to change that we've, we've been duped by too many times. I pray you open up the real path like the Red Sea. You just part the clear way in front of us as to how we follow Christ, how to become more like our Savior, how to glorify you in sanctification, and avail ourselves of all of of your grace and your power that has already been given to us in Christ in the Spirit. So set us apart and just continue to enlighten us through the study of your word. We have more to come, but uh, help us overcome the flesh that still resides within us. Uh, May your Spirit fill us and work mightily within us. Until next time, be with us, keep us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.